Welcome to WebRush, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Web Rush. This is episode 153. And today it's all about MPAs and SPAs. And if you don't know what those TLAs mean, don't worry about it. We're going to talk about it today. Uh, I'm not a big fan of acronyms, uh, but my co-host Craig Shoemaker is all about them. In fact, he insists that I call him CS instead of Craig Shoemaker, don't you, Craig? Yeah. Why? <laughs> I can come up with a witty enough acronym to follow it up with, but why? You are the person who has more dad jokes than any man I've ever well, I've got in so my many life, kids. I, so. I, I don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to jump right to it today and talk about the topic of single page applications and multi page applications or SPAs and MPA. <laughs> That's how we're going <laughs> to pronounce the right. acronym out there. I kind of like that. I don't know. MPA. Um, now I got Willy Wonka in my head. I'm not going to go there. So we want to talk about this topic today. And somebody was on the internet the other day talking about this. And I reached out because I thought it was a fascinating conversation. And that somebody is a former guest of ours, Rich Harris. How are you doing, Rich? I'm good. How are you? Doing pretty well. And for those of you out there who want to know a little bit more about Rich, let me read a little bit about him. He is a visual journalist for the New York Times and a serial open source author. Uh, and he's also one of the co-authors, should I say, or author of one of my favorite frameworks out there, which is Svelte.js. Did I say that properly, Rich? Yeah, that sounds about right. I know there's a large community behind it and contributors as well, but um, you seem to be uh, actively talking well, about I'm, how you use it. I'm, I'm the original creator of the framework, and I'm uh, one of the current active maintainers. There is, as you say, a pretty large core team. Um, I think because I was the original creator, I have um, settled into the role for better or worse as the public face of the project. Uh, <laughs> so I'm afraid it's it's me that you have to put up with on podcasts like this. <laughs> I think that that's pretty cool. And one of the things I really like is when you do share content about Svelte, I see a lot of the examples that you share out there. Uh, the New York Times stuff is pretty fascinating, actually. It, the animations and whatnot that are all in there and the uses of the framework, I think, are really good examples. I think far too often we see folks sharing their love for a technology, but don't actually show, you know, examples of where it's being used. And well, the MIT is a is a nice sandbox because, uh, you know, you you work on a project for a few weeks and then you move on to something else. So there's a lot of room for experimentation. You're not building things for for the long haul necessarily. So you get to try lots of new things all the time. I think it's fascinating that it's, you know, real world use cases being used to build it. It's kind of like how the Angular team at Google builds Angular for Google and then also for the community. So it's getting hard tested inside as well as out. So it's kind of nice. Now back to the topic of SPAs and MPAs. Um, can you kind of explain to the audience what exactly, what is this conversation about? Why should people care? Oof. Well, so this is a question about how we build websites. And it's a question about how we should build websites. Uh, but uh, as with all of these either-or questions, there's um, people on both sides who tend to have a slightly unnuanced view of what the other side thinks. And 
you know, I'm on I'm on Twitter and I have a big mouth and sometimes I tweet and my big mouth gets me in trouble on Twitter. And recently I, I waded into a conversation about um, multi-page apps versus single page apps. Um, because single page apps were were being uh, maligned, not for the first time, by the MPA proponents. And broadly, what these two camps believe is something like this. The MPA proponents believe that uh, the web is an inherently multi-page medium. And the best way to build a website is to have some back end somewhere or some set of static pages that are separate from each other. And if you link from one page to another, the browser goes to the server or it goes to the file store and it gets the new page and then it just replaces everything um, all in one go. The SPA proponents, the single page app proponents, um, think differently. They believe that you should build your application using a JavaScript framework and that navigating from one page, one page to another it essentially means re-rendering everything within the same page. So you're not reloading the page, you're not destroying the context, you're doing everything in situ. And the trouble is that the, the SPA crowd has over the years, not covered itself in glory because a lot of single page apps are frankly not great for users. They are bad in terms of performance and they're bad often in terms of accessibility. This isn't intrinsic to the choice to build something as a single page app necessarily, but it's happened enough that people have sort of divided into the old guard who view SPAs as uh, sort of the, the folly of youth of the less experienced generation of web developers, and then you, you know the the grizzled old wise veterans building um, MPAs in this very sort of stodgy traditional style. And the reality is that the best way to build a website is almost certainly between these two extremes. But people aren't really talking about that middle ground. I was say I think it's interesting because w w when you talk about a website that that could be a web property that has a lot of different applications built into whatever this site is. And to have the uh, one-size-fits-all type of mentality, either way, does seem like it's fraught with error. And so do you feel like there are certain places where you find natural breaking points or certain boundaries to say that, okay, this is either a blended area, this is a C SPA place, you know, like, how do you see that shaking out? You can certainly think of extreme examples where one approach is on the face of it more natural. Um, if you have a completely static blog site, there's no JavaScript at all, there's no interactivity, there's no commenting widget, there's no analytics or anything like that, then you may as well just have a set of HTML pages, particularly if it's small and you can regenerate those very quickly if you have a build step or you know, if it's larger, perhaps you, you have um, a server rendering solution that like, has cache headers on, on, on the responses so that they're not getting server rendered every time someone requests them, then that is a very natural fit. You click on a link to go to another blog post and it goes and fetches another blog post. At the other end of the scale, you've got, I don't know, video editing software or, or like a, a web browser version of Photoshop, something like that. It makes sense for that to be a single page app because you know you imagine if you're using Photoshop and it reloaded the entire window every time you click the lasso <laughs> tool, it, like it, that obviously doesn't make sense. But it's it's that gray area in the middle that 
I find most interesting because I think that the web is indeed a medium of primarily documents, but it's, it's a medium in which those documents are very often interactive. And the promise of the medium is that we can use that interactivity to do a better job of communication. And so when we stick to the extremes of this, um, of this debate, we lose out on, um, on the good stuff in the middle. So John, one of the things I like about AG Grid, which is a, a data grid component for the kind of complex uh, grid scenarios that we encounter all the time in enterprise apps, one of the things I really like about it is that it works for a variety of frameworks, Angular, React, Vue, or, or just vanilla JS. Does that ring a bell for you? No, it really does. There's all these different companies that I work with where they have no choice but to use a lot of these different tools because they have different teams working on them. So being able to port their code or share that code and that technical investment they have is really important to them. Yeah, well, it's important to us, uh, ideally, we're a consulting company. And, uh, you know, we never know what our client's going to want to use, Angular, React, Vue, but they're all going to need a grid. And it's great to be able to reach for uh, the one grid that works everywhere, AG Grid. You know, at at any size company, too, because you could have these teams that maybe they only use one framework, but eventually they're going to switch to another one and be able to take that investment again and use it, reuse it is really nice. So if a multi-framework data grid makes sense to you, please go check out AG Grid at ag-grid.com. I think you bring up some pretty good topics with this. Um, And I know that it gets very, even in my own head when I think about these, and I've built both kinds of apps, I get confused sometimes on how I differentiate. If I look at an app to really think like, is it truly MPA or is it truly SPA? And sometimes I feel like there's a little bit of both in the apps that I've built where, yes, it's a single page application, but there are parts of the application that actually lead to their own piece. I think this is where a topic like server rendering comes into play sometimes. Can you tell about how server rendering has a role in these architectures? Yeah, I... I think server rendering is crucially important. And I think for a long time, the, the front-end community did undervalue server rendering. They told themselves that you know, SPAs are somehow better perfor- performance because you're not having to send all this useless HTML or you know, the navigations are faster and everything. But the, what you find is that when content is server rendered, then the perception of performance is generally much better. And it's also the case that SEO is better with server-rendered content. Well, let me, let me challenge that and interrupt you for just a second. So if I, if I was to say this at a conference, for example, or live and say, hey, you know, server-rendering is the way to go, um, I think the initial thought a lot of folks get when we hear server-rendering is, well, I should just be having everything be a pure HTML page. But that's not exactly the case, is it, with server-rendering, where everything becomes an HTML page and there's no interactivity whatsoever? No, it, it doesn't mean that at all. It only means means that the initial view is server-rendered HTML. You can augment that with client-side interactivity however you like. The claim that the SPA people are making, and here I include myself in this, is that you're going to have a better time if the code that drives the interactive part and the code that drives the static part comes from the same code base and is written in the same language. And I think this is where some of the cultural divide comes from because a lot of the MPA people they want to build their websites with technologies like PHP or Django or Rails. Whereas obviously the SPA crowd, because their code is running in the browser, they are, by the whole nature of the thing, they are limited to JavaScript adjacent technologies and tools. Um, 
and, and so no, it, server rendering definitely doesn't preclude interactivity. And I actually think that uh, for most websites, you should have server rendering followed by client-side hydration. Uh, but that's another one of those things that tends to get lost in this dichotomy. Can you explain what you mean by client-side hydration? Yeah. Uh, typically, you'll have um, some parts of your page that require client-side interactivity. You'll have you know, a button that has some action or you know, you'll have some event listeners somewhere on the page. Maybe you've got some animations that trigger on scroll, something like that. And in order for those to work, you need to, uh, you need to add JavaScript probably to some existing elements on the page. There's a few ways that you can do this. You can have server-rendered HTML that is completely static, and then you can sprinkle in some JavaScript using you know, a little bit of jQuery or something like that. Uh, you could replace the entire contents of the page outright with the, the framework-managed version. Or you could do what most modern JavaScript frameworks do, which is take that server-rendered HTML and attach the event listeners to the existing DOM elements. So if someone has started typing into an input or something like that, it's not going to nuke the contents of the DOM. It's not going to destroy what's already on the page. It's not going to restart any CSS animations or anything like that. It's going to gracefully augment what you already generated. And so you get the fast start, but you also get the interactivity and, and the transition between the two ideally is seamless. No, knowing we have all these options available to us, what do you think is, like, why do we get stuck? Is it there's not enough examples showing how to do it correctly? Is it people just don't know? Is, it, is there limitations among the frameworks? I mean, that, that, is, that is a good question. My bias is, uh, is to argue that it's because the tooling historically has made it too difficult. Because I don't think you can do this stuff manually. You can't deliver the best possible user experience if you're authoring things by hand. And I know that some people will, will take issue with that statement. Some will even take offense. But I, I think that at any meaningful scale, that statement is true. And so if you're going to need to resort to tools, then if the tools are too complicated, they're too difficult to use, um, or they haven't explained their value proposition well enough, then you're going to get this sense that everything is needlessly complicated and that, you know, get off my lawn. <laughs> and I think, I, think that's where, I think that's the situation that we found ourselves in. Um, and my, my response to all this is to say, well, we should be investing in the tools that are going to provide us with the best possible user experience. And we should also be having nuanced conversations about what, what the, like the gold standard is for all of these things. Is it a multi-page app? Is it a server-rendered app with SPA-style client-side navigations? Is it partial hydration? Is it full height? Like all of these questions, we should be coming up with really robust answers to, and then we should be going away and we should be implementing them in the tools that we provide web developers. Do you think that the tools like uh, Silkkit, Nuxt, Next, uh, things like this, do they do they have enough today to get people started, uh, or what's the state of those tools now? Because they're the ones that most of these folks are using, right, to build if they want to have a server-side and client-side interactivity. They're absolutely enough to get people started, yes. Um, I mean, Next.js is almost an industry standard at this point. Um, if you want to build a, a React app with best practices, then Next is, is probably the way that you should go. Nuxt and SvelteKit are both heavily influenced by, by Next. 
Nuxt has been around for some time. If you're a Vue user, Nuxt is probably what what people are going to recommend. Um, SvelteKit hasn't yet reached 1.0, but SvelteKit is the Svelte community's answer to Next as well. Um, and people are using it in production currently. Um, we've used it in production a couple of things at, at the New York Times. And I would absolutely say that it is ready for people to use, even though it's not at a 1.0 just yet, hopefully soon. Um, and it will get you a lot of the way towards delivering the kinds of user experiences that we're talking about. SvelteKit, for example, it will allow you to build a fully um, separated multi-page app, no client-side routing whatsoever. It will allow you to build a, um, an SPA with no server rendering whatsoever. But it will also allow you to do everything in between. The, the router is optional, the hydration is optional, the server rendering is optional. And you can vary that by page depending on what's appropriate for each different part of your app. And because it's inherently um, adaptable to different environments, you can deploy it as a, a set of baked out static pages. You can deploy it to Cloudflare workers. You can deploy it to Netlify and Vercel and Lambda and all of these other things. Um, so like whatever your other technological constraints, you can probably build the kind of app that you want to build using one of these frameworks. You mentioned that if I use, for example, SvelteKit or, or Nuxt or Next or whatever my framework tool of choice is, like we pick that flavor. I'm thinking about beginnings of projects for developers. They decide, usually they have an idea of what framework they're going to use. They go pick the tool. Now, is there a point in the time, let's just use SvelteKit because that's your tool. So when you go through there as a developer, is there a point in time where you have to make a decision on, am I going to do uh, an MPA versus an SPA? Is there a point of no return where <laughs> it's, you know, refactoring craziness or kind of how, because I think a lot of people may not know exactly what they want when they start. So how do they make that decision when using these tools after they're already getting going? In, in the case of SvelteKit, there's, there's no point of no return. No. Um, the, the default behavior is that you will get a server-rendered application so that you get that fast initial load. And you will then get client-side navigation. It will hydrate the application with any interactivity that you have, and it will then um, do client-side navigation from that point forward. What some people find is that they want to use libraries that cannot work in Node. Um, and that's often the case when you have, I don't know, things like Canvas charting libraries and things like that. Ideally, they would work in Node to the extent that if you import them, your app isn't going to crash. And then like you're just not using them on, on, on the server rendering side of things because you know, what does it mean to server render a Canvas chart? <laughs> um, and then when you do hydrate it, then the Canvas chart library kicks in and you can render your Canvas chart. Everyone's happy. Some of those libraries won't allow you to do that. They've been written with this assumption that they're only ever going to be used in the browser context. And I always try and persuade library developers not to make those assumptions because you don't know what environment your code's going to be used in. But like, let's be fair, it, it's not a totally unreasonable assumption. So in that case, if you're an application developer and you run into that situation, you might at that point be tempted to turn off server rendering entirely. What SvelteKit allows you to do is say, well, until we're able to solve the problem with this particular library, maybe that means finding a different one, maybe it means raising a PR on that library's repo, we can turn off server rendering for just that page. And that's pretty straightforward within SvelteKit. So you haven't, at that point, made a decision that you're going to disable server rendering altogether. Uh, you're just doing it um, for, for the bit that can't handle it. Uh, and, and so everything is designed around the fact that applications are going to evolve, your requirements are going to change, 
and the technological choices that you're going to make are not necessarily going to be set in stone. So if you turn off server rendering for, let's say, one out of 10 pages on your app, um, so, so then does the way that works when you go directly to that page, then SvelteKit is going to pick it up and say, okay, well, we're going to serve the fallback page, then the client-side routing is going to pick up, and then it's going to hydrate the page that way. I mean, it would basically operate just like any other spot at that point. Exactly. Yeah, it'll, it'll give you some essentially blank HTML with the information that the framework needs to load the router, load the code that you need, and then it'll like populate the contents of the page as soon as it can. But if you hit one of the other pages and then you navigate to that page, then um, th there's there's no moment at which you have a blank gotcha. page. Okay. I'm going to go back to the Twitter thread where I saw you talking about MPAs and SPAs, and one of the comments you made here was. Uh, literally only one reason to choose an MPA. You don't want to use a JS runtime on the server. C can you talk about, because that sounds like a very good um, guideline to follow that you're putting forward. Can you talk about, would you adjust that? Or what, what did you mean by that? Uh, well, I think it's important before people um, fetch their pitchforks <laughs> to note that, <laughs> that that tweet is, is, is the second half of a two-tweet thread. Um, it was the one that got retweeted a little bit uh, out of context. <laughs> yes, but, and to, be, um, to be fair, I was trying to do that on purpose to look at talk about both sides of that. So, <laughs> hang on, I'm, I'm trying to bring up the uh, the original uh, tweet thread. And, and to be honest, I, I brought this on myself because I quote tweeted myself with that that thing out of context. You did. You actually subtweeted yourself, which was I thought I, fantastic. I, I subtweeted myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but okay, let's let's take the context reversion. Literally only one reason to choose an MPA, you don't want to use a JS runtime on the server. So one of the, the arguments that people have for not building their applications using modern front-end tooling is that they would rather use Rails, which, you know, fine. If if you like Rails, then that is a good reason to not use a JavaScript framework to build your app. Similarly for the people who want to use PHP or Django or you know, whatever it is. Um, what I was trying to say in, in, that, um, in that thread was that as SPA tools get better, and I say SPA tools to, to include things like SvelteKit that also do the server rendering and everything, as these tools get better, we're going to reach a point where that is actually the only reason not to use SPA techniques is that you want to use um, a language that cannot be used to build a single page app. And that was a slightly controversial statement because Twitter has a limited character count, but it's something that I think I pretty much stand by. Uh, there are other reasons historically that people have wanted to avoid single page apps, such as the fact that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there are uh, plenty of examples of single page apps that don't do a great job of accessibility and do things like intercepting middle click events so that links don't get opened in a new tab and all of those things that people have historically got wrong. But as we start to embrace tools that don't get that stuff wrong, then what's left? What is the argument for multi-page apps? And my thesis is that there's really only that one. So what brought this on? I'm kind of curious in how this came top of mind to you because it's something I've been thinking about a lot too. And I'm kind of curious what what stoked this up for you? Uh, well, so the, the proximate cause of this conversation was um, someone sharing a, a website that they had built with SvelteKit. It's the new Radio France website, or 
uh, radio force, I suppose. And it's built with felt kit, and it's it's a it's a beautiful site. And I was looking at the site, and I noticed that as I was listening to some of the radio broadcasts, I could still click around from one page to another, and the broadcast wasn't interrupted. If it had been done as a multi-page app, then that wouldn't be true. As soon as you click on a link and you go to a different part of the site, if you've got some media playing on the first site, it's on the first page, it's going to stop. There's no way to continue that playing. Whereas when you're doing something with an SPA framework, that's trivial. It, it's almost the, the behavior that you get for free. And so I, I tweeted about that. I tweeted about the fact that in amongst all these conversations that we've been having recently about multi-page apps, um, we've you know, overlooked the fact that there are a lot of things that you can do with SPAs that you simply cannot do with MPAs. And the reverse isn't true. That limitation only really runs in one direction. And obviously people started talking about that observation and uh, you know, we started talking about all of the other tangential things. And then it, it occurred to me that you know, when I profiled that, that Radio France site, um, the, the main um, detractor to its Lighthouse score was all of this third-party analytics code that, that, that they include. If it had been a multi-page app, then all of that third-party code would have to run on every single page load. And this is a fact about MPAs today. The biggest problem with performance on the web today, it's not our first party code, it's not our frameworks, it's all of the junk that we have to use because of quote unquote business requirements, where we have to have analytics and ad code and all that other stuff, which often is, let's face it, not very well written. I would rather have that run once on my initial page load and then have that code just live in the browser and then not have to worry about it ever again then have to pay that cost every single time I click a link um, on, on that website. And in amongst all the JavaScript bundle shaming that we tend to see from, uh, from the multi-page app proponents, I rarely see an acknowledgement that the main culprit is not that stuff. It's, it's this third-party code. And multi-page apps multiply that problem by the number of pages on the site. Hey, are you building apps in React, Angular, Node? or some other framework? Well, with NX, you can build your full stack apps in a shared mono repo, integrate with modern tools, and reinforce best practices. You'll get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier that will simplify your workflow. NX also helps you simplify the relationships between applications and shared libraries to make it easier to share more code and develop more consistently across teams. And the best part is you'll build higher quality apps and spend less time on configuration. So visit nx.dev to get Narwhal's popular open source toolkit for mono repo development today. Yeah, I was just taking a look at the Radio France um, that you tweeted. And yeah, it is fascinating to look at some of the examples of these applications that, that people are using. And I'm wondering, you know, what is the next evolution of this in your mind too? Because we see JavaScript frameworks, which it, it's funny, we still talk and hear the th things of, uh, it's a JavaScript flavor of the week. Uh, and for a long time, I felt like we were having new frameworks coming out every week. But really, it's been, you know, maybe half a dozen or less over the last couple of years that everyone are centering around, which I think is good. But is that because we've stopped innovation? Is there anything left to innovate? Or is there something else we should be focusing on for the next thing for uh, the web technology? I think most of the low-hanging fruit has been picked already. There is still some room for innovation. Um, if you look at what Ryan Carniato is doing with Solid, for example. 
um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. He's uh, a guy who also works on the Marco team at eBay. And Marco is a framework that has a slightly different take on some of this stuff. Uh, they really prioritize um, shipping the, the minimal amount of code to the browser to hydrate their pages, whereas um, Svelte at the moment, it has to hydrate the entire page. That's a limitation that we have that Solid and, and Marco. Quick is kind of like that too, right? Quick. So I, I was going to bring up Quick as well. So uh, so Misko Hevery, the, the guy who designed Angular in the first uh, in the first place, he is now um, working on um, a new framework called Quick, which is designed completely around this idea that that you can very selectively load the code that you need to accomplish, you know, whatever corresponds to the user's most recent app interaction, essentially. Um, it remains to be seen if that will capture a lot of mindshare. I've I've looked at some of the examples of Quick and like to be totally frank, I cannot imagine myself writing that code. It seems like there's a lot of ceremony involved in um, in enabling what Quick does, but maybe that's just uh, a, an early stage um, characteristic. And once it reaches a stable position, then the developer experience of using Quick is, is going to be competitive with, with existing frameworks. So in terms of performance and all of these other things, there is definitely room for innovation. I, I think we have got to a point where um, most things are good enough most of the time. And you know, even the, the framework that a lot of people point out as a relative laggard in terms of performance, which is, of course, React, is... Uh, is innovating hard on things like React server components and suspense and concurrent mode. And, and these things are going to have very tangible benefits for user experience as well. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, um, yes, we are going to see some innovation, but I, I don't think there's going to be um, a situation like we had in recent years where every week there's, there's, it feels like there's a new technology that people have to learn. And what I hope is that people are going to start focusing on other areas of the application developers' um, uh, list, of, list of problems, like real-time data and, and, and things like that. I think that a, lot of, a lot of attention has been paid to literally how do we wrangle DOM nodes in the browser. <laughs> and you know, there's, there are more interesting problems to solve, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, long gone are the days of, uh, and I'm old enough to remember the browser wars, where you wrote different languages and technologies and many if-then or switch case statements based upon the browser that you actually were, were supporting. Uh, while we have some of that still lingering around, it's dramatically different than it was back in those days, or even the times when we were trying to debate, should we even use HTML at all? <laughs> versus things like Flash and Silverlight and other alternatives. Right. So I do think all these things go in phases uh, for a couple of years to a decade sometimes on what we should be focusing on. Uh, I wonder too about where CDNs fit into this moving forward and trying to get as close to the edge. It seems like there's this battle of how can we make everything as fast as possible and beyond the frameworks and the tools but the actual cloud structure out there of how we get the code as close to the edge as possible. Do, do you have any thoughts on how they might play or evolve for us? I, I actually do. This is another thing that um, doesn't get as much discussion in the context of this argument about how we should be building websites as, as perhaps it should. Um, so 
my thesis, which I think is relatively uncontroversial, is that other things being equal, a better user experience is going to be provided by code that runs close to where the user is than code that runs far from where the user is. And that means that if you can do your rendering logic in the client, then you're probably going to have a better experience than if every navigation involves a round trip to a server, which could be very far from you. Like if you're in New Zealand and you're trying to use a service that is based in North America, then that round trip is going to be quite punishing. And so we have had this over the last few years, this trend towards um, cloud functions and more recently edge compute, which has kind of shifted uh, the way that we think about these things a little bit, because now it's not a, a, a binary thing between either the code runs on the server or it runs in the client. We've got code that runs in a service worker or a web worker, and we've got code that runs on the edge. But typically, these edge compute things like Cloudflare workers, they're running JavaScript code or they're running WASM code. And that, again, places constraints on what technologies you can use. If you're running a Rails app, then your users are probably going to have to hit your origin server for a lot of the content, at least the dynamically rendered content. If you're building things the Rails way, then there's going to be a round trip involved. But if you're using something like SvelteKit, you can deploy your app to Cloudflare workers or you know, any one of the other things that I expect to, to mimic Cloudflare workers over the coming years. And instantly, everyone everywhere in the world um, has you know, almost latency-free access to your website. The only blocker at that point is where does your data live? And even on that front, we're seeing a lot of developments in, um, in solutions that allow you to have your data globally distributed as well. And so I would expect that trend to heavily favor the kinds of technologies that people like me are talking about, SvelteKit, Next, Nuxt, all of these other things. Because if you can run it in a Cloudflare worker, you've already got a huge advantage over a technology that requires a server. Do you think that's going to be uh, in the relative near future for folks? Because I know edge computing is on the mind of all the major cloud providers, but do you think that's something that realistically the majority of web developers can lock into in the next couple of years? I, I think I would expect the adoption to, uh, to grow pretty stratospherically uh, over the next couple of years. Um, and that's not based on anything concrete. I don't have any data that anybody else doesn't have. Um, but just, just based on the conversations that, that I see happening and the conversations that I've had with people, there's a lot of enthusiasm for these new techniques. And I, I think that if you're building something greenfield today, you're probably going to be looking at something like Cloudflare workers before you're going to be looking at running your app in a data center on the other side of the world. Whether this happens or not, and I, and I agree, tend to agree with you, it feels like, and I have no data either to support this, other than my gut feel, it feels like that might be the next evolution. And the way I kind of like sum this up is it's less about what you're building with and more where you're putting it uh, towards down the road. Because again, the closer you get this stuff to the edge, I've seen apps in the past fail at no fault of a beautifully architected app that people put together that runs great on my machine. And then they put it out on the web and because of the architecture and where things are placed and it's not necessarily at the edge, certain users get fast performance, other users have minutes before things happen or timeouts. And uh, I imagine 
large companies don't necessarily want their users to wait minutes <laughs> to, to see their apps. So I hear they're against that. Hey, does the New York Times like that? I'm kind of curious. Is it, do they like their users to wait minutes before articles? Do you are like your state cold? Is that, is that an okay? I don't know. <laughs> that should be the firm. Do you like your state cold? Okay. Hey, Rich, thanks so much for coming on today. This was a, a great conversation. And I think this is just the beginning of the conversation I think a lot of folks have to have about where we're heading and what we're looking at and how MPAs and spas really work uh, moving forward for us. Uh, towards the end of the show, we'd like to have our final thought that we leave for the audience. So I will start with you, Mr. Shoemaker. What is your final thought? I think when it comes to any sort of debate or, or anything where there's two sides on, on an issue, it's really easy, like, like Rich said, for, for people to have formed opinions and whether or not you've had experience doing something or, or, or uh, even doing a thought experiment on things. And so I would say, you know, whether it's frameworks, architecture, how we're building web apps, or even certain philosophies in life, like just take the time maybe to take these thoughts, these techniques, maybe different frameworks out for a run, try it for yourself, and then get an opportunity to kind of think through some of that stuff. And I think kind of in general, if we did more than that, we might find all of us uh, in a little better spot. You're always so deep, Craig. <laughs> I have a shovel next to me. I've been practicing. <laughs> no, but it's true. It is true. I mean, how often do we all hear? But yeah, Craig, that's great. But which one should I use? Yeah. Tell me which one of these two things that I'm pitting against each other. Well, that's what I always come to come to ask you about. <laughs> yeah, that's when I hang up. Uh, <laughs> my final thought for today is really to, to think for yourselves. Uh, same kind of theme as Craig's got going on here. We can ask everybody else about what to think. We can have uh, you know, well-known folks on the podcast talking with well-founded positions like Rich to tell you his opinions on things too. Take it all in. I'm not saying don't listen to other folks. Take all the input in, get all your signals that you need, but really make the decision yourself. Nobody can tell you exactly what your scenario needs because nobody has the context that you have for the entire thing and situation scenario that you're building, uh, the team situation, the company situation, the budget, the timelines, all the nuances and integrations. So take the input, but make sure you evaluate it, make your own decisions on your own and feel comfortable and confident with that. Rich, what's your final thought for the audience today? Didn't know I was supposed to have a final thought, but you know what? It is Tuesday, September 14th when we're recording this, which means that there is one week left of summer. So my final thought is go outside and and get every last <laughs> drop of, of the last seven days before uh, before summer ends. Is Are you expecting a cold one in New York? I'm actually not. And to be honest, uh, fall is going to be a, a blessed relief because it's been pretty warm mm. here. But it still makes me a little sad every year. It does to me too, although I do love the foliage uh, in the Northeast. And I imagine most of the North of the country as well, uh, coming to fall. Uh, used to go to Vermont, Vermont quite a bit and look at the foliage in the October area. It's just absolutely gorgeous. So yeah, that's great. Everybody get outside and uh, take advantage of the summer while it's still here. And if uh, summer's already passed you, then take advantage of the time that you have. Rich, thanks again for coming on today. And thank you, Craig, for joining us for this episode of MPA and Spas. And thank you to our sponsors for keeping us on the air. For AG Grid for being a continued sponsor for Narwhal and their NX conference that they've recently had. And also the Ionic Framework, one of our newer sponsors. And of course, Idea Blade, our co-host Ward Bell's company. Thank you all for listening to us every week. We hear from us every Thursday morning. See you next time. <laughs>